so it's really unfortunate that there's even an argument about is climate change real, right? From a scientific perspective, the question of do you believe in climate change is like saying, do you believe that one plus one equals two? It, it, there's no, it's, it's a fundamental truth that we have been aware of for um, decades and that we're working to understand more and more of the details of. So the fact that it is misrepresented in the media is definitely unfortunate. It's heavily stigmatized as well. And often, you know, we don't do ourselves any favors. So it disproportionately affects certain countries, certain socioeconomic groups. So there's there's that whole aspect too for the impacts of climate change or what we can expect from the future. The I guess the overall problem of climate change that humanity faces has a huge amount of nuance and complexity to it, but the fundamental science basis is there, is sound. This week's guest is Dr. James Bradley. James was born in Glasgow, Scotland, and brought up in England by a surgeon father and a research science mother. In a supportive home environment, he grew and developed his interest in geobiology. With a curiosity for the outdoors and travel, an explorer gene, his adventurous and inspiring geography teacher encouraged him to pursue an education in environmental science and geography. In part one of this two-parter, we discuss James's education at Bristol, where he began climate modelling, modelling the impact of deforestation levels and the reflectivity of the Earth's surface on climate and carbon levels. James also breaks down the complexity of the biosphere. He discusses his first job out of university and why finance at an international bank did not enrich him, that led him to wishing away his week, and how his growing yearning to push the boundaries of scientific knowledge led him to return to education to complete his master's. Now an assistant professor at Queen Mary University in London, he runs his geobiology lab, where he works to understand the co-evolution of life and the environment. James explains the practical field work he's doing on the Greenland ice sheets to understand why it's darkening and shrinking and reducing the Earth's reflectivity, which keeps the planet's temperature in check. He explains the difference between positive feedback and negative feedback loops and his modelling of the pigment of the microorganisms that colonise these massive ice shelves, the impact of their nutrient cycles and the exponential effect on climate. He also covers the impact of deep ocean mining on microbial life on the ocean ecosystem. We end part one with James and I discussing the politicalization of climate, the media's reporting of it, and the impact of humanity on our global ecosystem, and his perspective on the positive impact and reducing carbon emissions as a result of the global pandemic. I hope you enjoy the curiosity, the calm consideration, and scientific rigor of Dr. James Bradley. Come back tomorrow for part two. So James, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you very much. It's delighted to be here. Oh, it's uh, it's wonderful for Dan McDougall, uh, who recommended you. Uh, so a big shout out to Dan. And uh, I really hope at some point we, uh, we all get to sit and share a beer somewhere, either in Barcelona or uh, in the UK. We always start with upbringing. Now, I found it very difficult to research and find anything about where you were brought up. You're obviously from the accent. You're English, I suspect. Yeah, I'm actually Scottish, so I was... Ah, great. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, good. That makes me feel a lot better. I was born in Glasgow and I had a Glaswegian accent for the first, I don't know, eight years of my life and then uh, moved to Cambridge when my parents moved to work and I think that accent got out of me pretty quickly after that. But, <laughs> you know, I'm Scottish, um, 
yeah, I love I love Glasgow. <laughs> okay, so you left Glasgow aged what? Age seven or eight, seven, I think. Okay. And what were your parents? Uh, so my dad was a transplant surgeon, kidney transplant surgeon, and he took a job at Cambridge University. So for kind of academic side and clinical practicing side as well. So still doing surgery, transplantations, but also to work in a in the kind of academic research kind of side of that as well. And my mum worked in the uh, lab that he sort of oversaw. So she was a kind of research scientist lab manager role. So they they worked together at the hospital in Cambridge. Wow, that's interesting. So uh, work together, live together. Yeah. Um, for, and siblings? Uh, yeah, I've got a brother. Yeah. He's, I'm in Cambridge right now. So he's, I'm back at my family home. He's here too. Okay. So what, about that upbringing, in terms of your father being a surgeon and your mother working, which of the, between the two, what was the impact of their parental sort of direction, support on the direction that you've, you've taken in life? Feels, I think, very even between the two of them in terms of their impact on me. In terms of my upbringing I, and, and their, their role in that. I don't think I was ever kind of overly handed things and similarly never kind of pushed into a particular direction, but they certainly gave me a footing. Like I went to a great school. I had plenty of enriching experiences. We traveled as family. They sort of gave me the opportunities to follow up on any interests that I had to pursue. So when I got into music, they made sure I had a guitar. When I got into playing tennis, they made sure I could play tennis and you know, when I wanted to go out hiking and wild camping, they made sure I had a backpack and hiking boots and stuff. So it was, yeah, incredibly supportive and never felt like I was pressured in any direction or other. And at that sort of that young age, did you have any sort of sense of where you wanted to go in life? Do you have any ambitions to be rock musician, tennis player? <laughs> <laughs> I never knew what I wanted to do when I was older and didn't... Uh, until I guess until I went into a career that I didn't feel was enriching me or like stimulating me as much as I wanted or I kind of knew I could be or wanted to be on a day-to-day basis so it wasn't until I tried a few things that I realized what and what about your brother was he the same no I think we have very different interests so I was always uh, looking to travel whereas he is quite comfortable in a kind of home environment. I I'm, I guess I'm much more kind of outdoorsy. He used, he used to like video games. So there was, <laughs> we share a lot of kind of common values and a lot of interests, but I think I'm, I'm happier kind of going away and putting myself into challenging situations or unfamiliar situations. And he's more of a kind of like home comfort person. And you're the younger? I'm older, two years older. Older, right, okay. So you've got this explorer mentality and gene. <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, I guess somewhat. <laughs> so when did you get a sense of you having this sort of more exploratory curiosity about the world, wanting to travel? When did this that, that hit you? Was it during some of the early travels with your parents? You were always... Yeah, I think I've always been happier kind of being outdoors than indoors. So just, you know, doing things outside, walking, hiking, camping... I've always felt kind of um, the experience of being within walls is something that I have, you know, I would much rather just be out in open spaces. So that's been with me, I think, for as long as I can remember. I think, yeah, certainly I started enjoying outdoor experiences and traveling through 
experience with my, with my family. So they would take us skiing. Um, I used to love being in the mountains. Opportunities through school to go kind of hiking and backpacking and camping with groups. And then I think it kind of just built on from that. Were you part of something, anything like the Duke of Edinburgh scheme? But yeah, I did the Duke of Edinburgh, I think, you know, 14 or something, but it never really made, so none of these experiences made a significant impression on, they didn't. on me. I just, I just did them because I enjoyed it. I was in the Scouts. I was never really like, I was never super into the Scouts, but I kind of did it because it was an enriching, fun activity to do on in an evening from school. And where, where was school? Mark, excuse me, oh. do you want to explain what that Duke of Edinburgh is for the people that don't know? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's like, what's the Duke of Edinburgh? Yeah, the Duke of Edinburgh scheme is um, the Queen's husband, Prince Philip. It, I suppose it's uh, not philanthropic, but it's an NGO to help young people grow and nourish and appreciate. I suppose it's uh, it's task-based. It's going on the great outdoors, camping. You go, go through various levels from bronze, silver, gold. I don't know if it's still that way. But it's about building character and resilience in people. I think it's fair. I knew very little about it, but it was just something that I kind of, it, they, were, they were activities that I enjoyed doing. So I think there was, a, there was an aspect of service where I worked at a, I kind of volunteered at a kid's tennis camp. There was an aspect of, was it practicing sports? So I think I did, I can't remember what I did for that, but it was something that could have been kickboxing that I did very momentarily for, <laughs> <laughs> not, didn't, didn't keep that one on. And then an element of kind of hiking and camping. So yeah, school, where was school? Uh, in Cambridge, uh-huh. past school. So it's a, yeah, it was a, it was a good place to go to learn, and certainly had a, it gave me a huge number of opportunities and experiences. And where did actually just one question? One of the, I mean, you've, it sounds like a very abundant childhood and home life, uh, but we always ask if uh, how people grow up with scarcity or abundance. Yeah, I don't think it, certainly I didn't have scarcity. Um, I don't think I had abundance either. I think, like I said, I was never really like handed anything. I was never yet opportunities kind of uh, were made available to me if if it was something that I felt passionate about. So I think Mm -hmm. I was never necessarily prevented from following up on any kind of interest yet. It wasn't a kind of uh, living in abundance lifestyle. (laughs) Okay. And, and you talked about play and, and access to the outdoors. It doesn't sound like you were a, an, a, a sort of a solitary child. It sounds like you were out with friends playing. How was, what was that experience of play like? So somewhat, I guess. I, um, I was never in the big groups at school. I, was never, I never kind of shaped myself to the interests of the bigger group or whatever I kind of just did things that I wanted to do so for instance I loved going to live music shows so I would go to like I don't know two or three shows a week possibly but I would happily go by myself if, if um you know no one was into it so early music musical influences were uh well who did I I loved this is like the indie kid stage so I loved Block Party, and I loved the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They were my first live show that I went to, but it was all the kind of smaller indie scene. Well, I was in Cambridge, so yeah, it's not, so you'd have to... Yeah, you, you only see the small bands that come through Cambridge. Well, the Chili Peppers didn't come to Cambridge, did no, they? Yeah, that was in London. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
and say. All right. So education, that school that you went to, how did that affect your the direction you went in? Did they spot a, a talent and nourish it at any point? Were there any influential teachers or mentors? I There certainly was uh, one teacher in particular. I don't feel like I was nourished in any particular direction or any particular kind of subject. I studied kind of across the board and, and enjoyed almost all the things that I studied. But then geography in particular, I had an incredible geography teacher. His name's Richard Crabtree. He inspired me so much when I was at school. He had an incredible kind of back history. So he worked for the British Antarctic Survey when he was younger and was uh. one of the first, not one of the first people to go out. And he was, he was one of the first people certainly to go out and map parts of Antarctica. He worked a lot in Kenya and would be involved in a, a bunch of different projects there. And so his method of teaching was almost, uh, we got the academic stuff done, but his, his classes were all about storytelling. So it was incredibly enjoying and inspirational, I guess, to be in these classes. So he had a big impact on me, but I don't think I recognized it until sort of much later into what I'm, what I'm doing now already. When you talk about him, it uh, reminds me of uh, a Ranulph Fiennes type character. <laughs> yeah, he was uh, an adventurer. We kept in touch since I left. It was sixth form and then went to university. And then I moved abroad after university, but eventually came, came back to the UK. And we kept in touch throughout that whole time. But he became really sick and sadly he died when I was at. When I'd gone back to uh, do my PhD in Bristol, but he was definitely an inspirational figure in, in inspiring me to sort of pursue these ambitions and actually to, to go into a PhD in a kind of environmental science, earth science discipline. All right. Yeah. So you, you initially went to Bristol to study physical geography. Presumably that was uh, Mr. Richard Crabtree's influence. Yeah, that was just a direct follow on from loving geography lessons um, at school and sort of being inspired by his stories and his experiences and thinking, you know, I, I want to learn more about the environment and, yeah. Were you, do you think, would you describe yourself as being environmentally conscious um, at that phase in your life around and being interested in what was happening in the, in the environment? Yeah, um, I was certainly inspired from my experiences at school to pursue environmental science, earth science related topics at university. In terms of, and I was always curious about how the world works and understanding things in greater depth. In terms of being environmentally conscious regarding climate change, that I don't think that was so much on my radar at the time. It is now. Yeah, well, I just suppose it really was on that many people's uh, consciousness in the sort of the early two thousands and sort of late nineties with us flying around the world with sort of a abandon and not really sort of conscious of our behaviours and our actions. Maybe you could talk to us about the, what influenced your the specific direction you went in with your thesis and your interest in um, microbial dynamics, which is something I've, two words I've never put together before. Yeah, so um, <laughs> my first, first degree at Bristol University was in physical geography, undergraduate degree. And the biggest piece of work that I did for that specifically was actually um, 
climate modeling. So my undergraduate thesis was was um, manipulating a computer model to simulate the effects of of what would happen if you were to plant trees, so forestation in northern high latitude areas. So big programs by from Canada, from Russia, for example, to forest huge areas of, of northern high latitudes in order to draw down CO2 from the atmosphere and, and encourage you know, preservation of, of wildlands and forests. So that project, we used a model, a climate model, mathematical computer model, to simulate how the albedo changes, which is the reflectivity of the ground, if you were to plant forests over over an area that would otherwise be covered by tundra, so open ground. So what happens if you plant trees is there's a positive there's a positive outcome, which is that it draws down CO2 from the atmosphere, but there's somewhat of a negative outcome in that um, you're replacing what would be really reflective high latitude regions that would be covered by snow with tree canopies that when they're covered by snow, they're not as reflective as bare ground. So that causes the darker surface causes more warming. So we, uh, I, for my undergraduate thesis, used a modeling approach to weigh up the benefits of the CO2 drawdown with the albedo change or the reflectivity change. And how do you spell that? Albedo. Albedo. (laughs) A-L-B-E-D-O. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, So that's a really important concept in earth sciences or in, in understanding the radiative balance of so there's a great book I, I picked up last year called Project Drawdown that talks about all the different, the, some of the simple and the more complex things we could do to offset the carbon in the atmosphere. Right. And it sounds like that type of modeling is the type of modeling that goes into creating these. Yeah, sure. It helps us to certainly to quantify processes. So without a, a numerical way of doing that, without a quantitative way of doing that, it's, it's hard to sort of to get a true appreciation of you know if you're just thinking in concepts then it's, it's hard it's hard to truly balance these so that initiative that came out the is it the billion trees initiative and i can't remember who launched it so albeit that's a great drawdown project there could be some counter a negative effect of, of that yeah i think the the outcome is that it really matters sort of where you plant trees and there would be other impacts as well for example like foresting certain areas that would otherwise be wetlands or peatlands so these are also really important habitats for storing carbon for example so if you were to transform peatland areas to drain peat bogs and transform them into forested areas that would hugely upset the global carbon cycle so you not only need to focus on you know just taking positive action but taking it in the right measures that don't impact something in a kind of unforeseen way Okay, I'm going to come back to this when we're, sure. uh, a little bit later. But so currently, when you when you finished your your PhD at Bristol, uh, did, at that stage, were you set in the direction of of being uh, a geobiologist, or did life take you in a different direction? By that time, I think I was. But by the time that I finished my undergraduate degree, I certainly wasn't. I still had no idea what I wanted to do. So I got to the end of my third year at university and did what most people around me were doing, which was apply for a ton of different graduate roles, graduate jobs, um, sort of management trainee schemes. And um, I applied for all sorts of things. I applied for like a t- teaching trainee scheme, a 
even in in oil business, in finance. And one of the offers that I got was to work for a large international bank on their graduate trainee program. And the, I think the key thing that attracted to me that to that was that it was in the Netherlands. So it was an opportunity to move abroad, um, mm-hmm. live in a different co- country, experience something completely new. The fact that it was finance didn't excite me at all, but it was, you know, it was a job and a reasonably paid, well, well-paid job that sort of a lot of people around me were taking on, taking on as well. So I, I love the experience of moving to a different country. Amsterdam? Living in Amsterdam was incredible. I have some amazing friends uh, there still. But I was never enriched by the work that I was doing. It, I, and I'm not saying that to discount the whole sort of um, financial sector and the, and the work that people do there. I, I, I think, you know, some people are super into it and you go to university and study business, study finance, try to understand economics. That was never me. So <laughs> I found myself in this, in this job that it didn't excite me too much. And I, and I kind of never left the, the interest in earth sciences and environmental concepts and sort of understanding the world around me. So what the thing, I guess, that made me realized that I really didn't want to do it was that I would kind of be wishing away Monday to Friday. So I'd I'd find myself at work on Monday kind of being like, I wish it was, I wish it was Friday. And then you're wishing away the whole week. And then the weekend comes and it passes too quickly and you're back on Monday again. And so I, I couldn't just spend my time wishing away the whole week. So, I mean, the situation that I find myself in now, I love what I'm doing. And it's the complete opposite of that. So I, f- I find myself on Thursday or Friday being like, oh, God damn, I wish it was Monday because I've got <laughs> all this stuff that I want to do. So what was it, that yearning to do more than just have, uh, work in, in finance? And there must have been something, either a conversation, a real a moment of realisation when you went, okay, no, my, my passion, my skills, where my interests are, are in this area. Yeah, I was... I was good academically so I was always you know I did well in my degree and I did well in the subjects that I studied at school but I think the thing that really drove me to leave that well-paid job and go back to university and and go to grad school was I wanted to kind of I thought it'd be really cool to discover something to make discoveries to sort of push the boundaries of knowledge forward only incrementally but to actually have to make like a meaningful impression on sort of what we know about the world and how it works. And also to my, my job in a way during my PhD was just to learn about stuff and figure, figure out answers to new questions. Um, and that's still what I do now. So I get, you know, my, my job is to learn about stuff and figure things out, which I enjoy. And that, that in the area that you've, I suppose if where you were studying, that could be open to broad interpretation of where you put your focus. Why did you focus so specifically on uh, the Arctic? I think that that was sort of serendipitous in the sense that my geography teacher at school was worked for the British Antarctic Survey and would tell stories about working in Antarctica. My undergraduate degree program had a strong it's known as the cryosphere, cryosphere component to it, which is the, the sort of the parts of the world that have frozen water. So the glaciers, the ice caps, 
sea ice, for example. So there was a strong element of the teaching of my degree program, which was on that. And that was because the professors who were teaching it, um, that's what they did for their research. So I got on well with the professors at, at university that I went to and saw that they were going off and exploring areas of the Arctic in order to collect their samples and and collect data and make measurements. And that certainly was something that I felt like I would enjoy doing too. So I got the opportunity to, well, I applied for several PhDs. Not all of them were Arctic focused. I actually applied for one on coral reefs, but the, the PhD that I was offered and that I took up was back in Bristol, working with a professor that I really that really inspired me throughout my undergraduate time there. And I continued to, I continue to work with him to the present day. But yeah, I, I recognized the importance of the Arctic and the polar regions in the Earth system as a whole. And I found that through my undergraduate work, that there was kind of niches that I would enjoy working within in that. So you're currently an assistant professor at Queen Mary University in London but you also have your Bradley Geobiology Lab. Can you explain what that is and how the two coexist? Yeah, so that I recently got the position in London. as um, in, in the UK, it's called a lectureship, and in the US, it's known as an assistant professor. So lecturer actually means something different in the US. So I put assistant professor down to sort of um, let all of my American colleagues <laughs> know that this is the role that I'm in. And so I, I did my PhD, and then I moved to the US and I did um, what's called a postdoc, which is kind of independent research. And um, and then now I have this position where my role is to establish independence and kind of lead, drive forward my research through, for example, supervising PhD students and postdocs and making the ideas that I have kind of come to fruition by sort of taking a, a more of a leadership role in science. So I've essentially just, it's the geobiology lab is the name that I've sort of given to the work that me and my group um, going forward will be, will be doing. And that work is about understanding, as it, if I understand it correctly, is understanding the interactions between microorganisms and their geochemical and physical environment over long time. Yeah. So that's certainly one aspect of it. So over the last several years, I've got more and more interested in, in commonly called the co-evolution of life and environment. So how does life, microbial life, microorganisms, so like, you know, the most fundamentally small, simple organisms, which are incredibly abundant on earth, how are they, how was their evolution shaped by the environment in which they live? And then also, how do they impact the environment itself? So that is a, an, a question that's kind of, that, you know, has taken scientists in from all different disciplines. But in order to understand the interaction of life and environment, you kind of have to have an understanding of the life itself, the physical environment, the chemical environment, um, in order to put all of those pieces together. So can you give a, a specific example of how that is manifesting in the world we live in today? Yeah, sure. I did read that really interesting article that Dan put together for The Guardian, I believe. Yeah, so that's actually a, a really good example. Some of the work that I've been involved in recently 
but it's led by some other colleagues in Germany and um, and in Denmark and also in Bristol actually. And one of the reasons why I was out in Greenland last summer with Dan is that glaciologists, so people who study glaciers and ice sheets, have noticed over the last several decades and, and primarily in the last few years actually, that the surface of the Greenland ice sheet, um, the second largest ice sheet in the world, the largest contributor to sea level rise, has been darkening, and especially so on the western margin of the ice sheet. And people have come up with a number of reasons for why that darkening might take place. For example, the increase of industry in, in adjacent land masses and soot and dust that's blown across the ocean and been deposited on this very white reflective surface. Um, I should mention it's really important that it's reflective because it's reflecting the solar radiation. So the ice sheets act as a big mirror to, to stabilize the temperature of the Earth. And if they weren't so reflective, the Earth would be a lot warmer of a place. So it's somewhat concerning that the ice sheets have been darkening. And shrinking, obviously. And shrinking, yeah. So darkening and shrinking due to surface melt. And separate to all of that, glaciers and ice sheets have been recognised as a biome in the similar sense that, that forests and the oceans are recognised as a biome through studies of the microorganisms that colonise and live on glacier surfaces, on and underneath glaciers. So recently these two worlds have collided because it's been put forward that the microorganisms that live on these glacier surfaces are somewhat uh, responsible for the darkening. And the reasoning, the reasoning of that is that um, certain organisms, such as algae, that live on glacier ice and snow surfaces, they deal with hugely intense solar radiation. So they produce pigments, red, green, purple pigments, which act to protect themselves from the high solar radiation. And the production of those pigments has been shown now to cause a noticeable change in the albedo, so the darkening of the ice surface. So this is an example of how um, an abundance of microbial life is, is evolved and responded to the environment that it's in by producing these pigments, but it's also shaping the environment that it's in in a very significant way for the individual organism because it's, it's causing darkening, which causes melt. So it, and it, organisms need liquid water to survive. So it's creating its own habitat, but it's also causing the melting of the ice sheet. Okay, so let me get this clear. So the pigment, the, this, this new manifestation of a pigment in this, these microorganisms is a result of what? Is it the increased radiation? That's a great question. So why has the darkening increased? Yeah. This is, is, we're, we're, this is kind of at the boundary of, of what we know right now. But one of the, the theories that is put forward that is being tested is that the, so the Greenland ice sheets, the, the majority of the ice sheets does not experience melting. It's mostly just the areas around the edge that experience temperatures that are warm enough to cause any kind of surface melt. But more recently, as a result of climate change, so human-caused anthropogenic warming of Earth's atmosphere, and especially the polar regions, there's been an increased amount of melt of the Greenland ice sheet over an increased area of its surface. So the theory is that due to this increased expansion of melt, there is essentially a larger habitat area for microorganisms to colonize because these microbes need 
liquid water in order to survive. So if you have increased melt, then you have a larger habitat space and um, these organisms can colonize a greater area, but also in possibly an increased abundance within this because the, the length of the growth season is longer. There are, there's, there's potentially alteration of uh, nutrient cycles. So the, the food sources that these organisms require is being changed somewhat. So that's possibly why we're seeing um, a darkening in recent years. But presumably the concern is that with that increase around the edges, there becomes an exponential or an, or an accelerant. As they darken it, the reflection goes down, the temperatures go up, the melting increases. Yeah, certainly. So that's, an example, that's a really good example of what's known as a positive feedback, where you have the onset of one change which causes uh, something else to happen that then causes an acceleration or a or an acceleration of that initial change. Doesn't sound very positive. <laughs> for, for yeah. the, maybe for those little the microbes. <laughs> sure. So we have, we have positive and negative feedbacks and negative feedbacks are really important in stabilizing the earth system and positive feedbacks um, act to kind of, they could potentially cause very rapid changes. Mm. So when you observe these and you start to model them, you can presumably, sort of, through your modellings, start to play forward what the broader environmental impact could be over sort of years, decades, um, centuries. Yeah, absolutely. And so, what's that modelling telling you? So there are there are a number of different scales that we need to consider. First of all, let's look at kind of the global scale simulations. So we have oceans, we have the atmosphere. The Earth is kind of divided into a number of little boxes and the atmosphere has a number of different layers to it and we simulate all of the transfers that go on between those layers. This deals with mostly physical processes and an approximation of chemical processes and biology is considered in a, in a kind of much more basic sense. But we can use data from the past to test those models and then run them forward to understand what will happen in the future. But because those models have somewhat of an approximation of the biology, for example, any kind of positive feedback that we just discussed with the darkening of the albedo of the ice due to algae, that would be lost within the model because the model doesn't account for that explicitly. So in order to improve those types of models, one area of focus is to think about how we're representing biological life forms within computer simulations. This is an area of research that's not hugely widespread. One, because of a lack of a quantitative understanding, and two, because um, it gets incredibly numerically, computationally expensive to run global climate simulations without biology. But when you start to add additional processes in, that increases the computational demand super high. Is that an area where advancements in machine learning and artificial intelligence could help support that addition? Yeah, absolutely. So the computational power that has been available historically has been uh, exponentially increasing. And at the same time, the complexity of our global climate simulations have also been exponentially increasing. So it's still, you know, it, it takes several days to run several thousand years of a climate model. Even back in the day when the climate models were simple, it took uh, a certain number of days to run a certain number of thousand years, for example. It still takes that long. 
because although our computational power has increased, um, so has the complexity of the simulations that are being done. No, we need that quantum computing. (laughs) (laughs) So in terms of this, this broader... I mean, you got you're very specific around your area of microbial. Is it how do you call it? Just microbial um, biology. Yeah, so I would I would say um, biogeochemistry, which okay. uh, is encompassing bio for biology, geo for you know the geosphere, geology, geosciences, and chemistry for the interaction of that two. So I'm interested in terms of because obviously you've as you've just explained the environmental modeling covers so many different elements from obviously deforestation to the impact we have with our co2 emissions do you have uh, is there a group of people like yourselves where you come together and compare and you exchange your ideas so you start to get a try and piece together the complexity of really what's going on on the planet yeah absolutely so all of us scientists have our little niches which we focus on and that is necessary because we're trying to very incrementally push forward knowledge in a very specific field or a very specific knowledge gap and even identifying those knowledge gaps you need to have a good awareness of what is known to know what's not known yeah (laughs) so um it takes a huge amount of effort uh commitment understanding to even get to a point where you can identify what's not known and to be able to push that forward, you need to dedicate a huge amount of resources and time in the lab, running experiments, for example, to gain evidence as to what might be at play here. So people tend to specialize incredibly so, but at the same time, we are reading the publications, the studies that other scientists are doing to, to give us some kind of context. We're watching talks, lectures, seminars of other scientists. We're going to meetings and conferences where we're talking to each other in different disciplines. So it's really important to, to keep that awareness of what else is going on in the field in order to know where your work fits in and to keep that kind of broader perspective. And sometimes it'll help you to recognize an, an area where your work fits in, which you would have never um, come across if it weren't for branching outside of your subjects. So the, the example, the link between biology and um, the physics of ice sheets, for example, that would be a, a difficult bridge to cross if you didn't have some awareness of, if you were a biologist and didn't have some awareness of the, the way in which ice sheets interacted with solar radiation um, or their kind of geophysical dynamics. So maybe you could... Um give another example of something you've been quoted on recently, which is the deep mining on the seabed and the impact that's having on the broader environment and the risks, inherent risks of it. Yeah, sure. This is, I guess, an example of something that I was was really fortunate to be brought in to this piece of work, to this study, where we were looking at what is the potential impact of of mining the seafloor for rare earth elements such as manganese and cobalt. Uh, what's the potential impact of that on microbial communities that live at the seafloor and the ecosystem services that they provide? So, and, and just worth saying, why we mine for these these items? Right. So they're used in in every um, mobile phone. 
they're used in batteries, for example, for for electric cars. So Tesla, um, Elon. Yeah. <laughs> so typically, these uh, rare earth elements are mined on land, but there is an abundance of them on the seafloor, and extensive mining of the seafloor has not yet taken place. But there are a lot of people who are very interested in exploiting the resources at the bottom of the seafloor. So various people are quite concerned about the impacts that dredging the seafloor, um, extracting these resources from the seafloor might have on animals that um, that live there, on microorganisms that provide essential kind of e- ecosystem services. And uh, I was brought into this study because of my expertise on how microbial communities at the seafloor impacts the carbon cycle. So we wanted to try to understand if if um, mining and um, disturbing these these areas of the seafloor will cause significant impacts on on the burial of carbon in the seafloor and the oxygenation of the the deep ocean. So this this study that I was involved in. Um, we kind of examined all of the various impacts of of how potential mining might disturb seafloor habitats, and essentially what we found was that there hasn't been enough work that's gone into testing any of these things. So we need to be carrying out much more thorough environmental impact assessments to determine what ecosystem services or animals are vulnerable and what um, is is more sort of stable. Being someone within the heart of the scientific community that are on the boundaries of what we know and therefore what we don't know, how do you reflect on the on the way that uh, climate and the climate crisis is discussed in media, and which I, I could only imagine is uh, seen as oversimplification and even denial? Yeah, so it's really unfortunate that there's even an argument about is climate change real, right? From a scientific perspective, the question of do you believe in climate change is like saying, do you believe that one plus one equals two? It, it, there's no, it's, it's a fundamental truth that we have been aware of for um, decades and that we're working to understand more and more of the details of. So the fact that it is misrepresented in the media is definitely unfortunate. It's heavily stigmatized as well and often you know we don't do ourselves any favors so it's, it's very Stig- stigmatized and politicized as well yeah hugely politicized hugely stigmatized it disproportionately affects certain countries certain socioeconomic groups so there's there's that whole aspect too for the impacts of climate change or what we can expect from the future so there's a there's a huge amount the I guess the overall problem of climate change that humanity faces has a huge amount of nuance and complexity to it, but the fundamental science basis is there, is sound. So then if we accept that it's there, then the, the real question that might be open for some genuine debate is what's the degree to which our behaviours as a human, as a species that inhabit this planet are having on that and are we the con- the major contributory factor to the acceleration of this or let's see oh, yes it is accelerating yeah so that is also undeniable humans are the major 
contributing factor to recent climate change, if not the, the only significant contributing factor to, to recent climate change. So the fact that, that there's even a question about that as well is, um, is product of, I guess, information not being properly communicated for various different reasons. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.